This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you're listening to the Bent Duo, which is pianist David Friend and percussionist Bill Solomon, performing Unsettled by Sarah Hennies from a 2020 New World Records CD release devoted to the music of Sarah Hennies, who is my guest in this month's episode, in which we talk about repetition, perception, experimentation, and maintaining a DIY aesthetic. I've wanted to talk to you ever since I got this amazing, <laughs> amazing CD. I guess it was the fall. Time is very blurry right now. Yeah. It was just such a joy hearing those pieces. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's perhaps one of the most, if not the most extraordinary new thing I've listened to since the pandemic. I was just, oh, thank, you. thank you. I mean, I was really smitten with it. It was like a whole new sound world. And what struck me about it, and the place I wanted to begin with this, is these pieces were composed and in fact even recorded, you know, months before the whole world shut down. But for some reason, they really sounded like a soundtrack to this era, in a way. They really kind of conjured up, for me at least, this feeling of timelessness that we've all experienced these last two years. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in relation to the pandemic, but you know, part of the reason that I like working with repetition so much is that you have this sense that the music is staying in one place, but it feels like it's developing anyway. The music is sort of stopped in time, but it, to me, doing something over and over again, even though the music is not hypothetically changing, your thoughts are changing. That like hearing something for one minute is experientially very, very different from hearing it for, let's say, eight minutes. And so the listener is changing, even though the, the music is always changing on like a micro level, but essentially you're hearing the same thing over and over again. And so I can totally see that related to the pandemic because, you know, just the other day I was referred to some tweet as having been a few months ago. And then I found it and it was from January of last year. <laughs> and so time is definitely passing in a very strange way that is some combination of like, slowness and absence for more than our entire lifetimes composers have been exploring repetition as a structural device you know the the minimalist composers but in their cases it's sort of a means to an end repetition so that you could pay closer attention to a process whether it's things going in and out of phase or an additive process but i feel like with your music it's doing something else it's presenting repetition as sort of an aesthetic realm. And you said there are things that are changing, but I'm not necessarily sure it's about having the listeners perceive that, or maybe it is. Well, it's complicated and well, of course it is, but, and that's just another reason why I love repetition so much is that you can look at the score for Unsettle. It's like two and a half pages long for a 30 minute piece and think, oh, well, this is just a bunch of whole notes that repeat a million times. But then when you hear it, you have this like visceral reaction, or maybe visceral is the wrong word, but very complicated intellectual response to something that seems like 
could be nothing. To me, just the idea of taking something that seems simple and showing that it is actually very, very complicated is something that has been at the core of basically every single piece I've made in the last 10 to 12 years. And so I've been kind of swimming around in that area in different ways for a really long time. I'm glad you mentioned that score for Unsettled because there's a page of it in the New World booklet note. And you look at it and it's true. It's like, okay, there are just a few things going on. And I didn't look at that page until after I'd listened to the disc a few times. And then I always like do a deeper dive and read the notes. And I said, that's all? That's all that's there? Because yeah, it seemed like there's know, so much more. I always joke that I'm not like a contest winner kind of composer because, you know, if you're on a jury and you see two and a half pages of whole notes, it's just like, next. this isn't a brag but when people hear that piece live consistently they're like wow or like at the premiere in buffalo multiple people came up to me and said where were the microphones because they thought that what they were hearing was the result of amplification or electronic transformation or something why i love so-called simple music is because it gets at the fact that like the way that sound behaves is really unusual and playing whole notes is a path to exposing that. And it's also the relationship between the two players and the relationship between the sound and the space and the relationship between where you're sitting versus where the ensemble is. Here's a little more of the Bent Duo's performance of Sarah Henney's Unsettled on New World Records. take away any sort of aesthetic musical experience and just boil it down. This is a very Lucier attitude of, I'm going to take absolutely everything away from this until it's getting at the thing that I'm interested in. I love Lucier's music, obviously, but there's something about what I'm doing that has a a sort of more, I hesitate to use the word emotional because Lucier's music is obviously emotional and I'm not sure that's what I even mean with my music, but there is an added sort of interest in psychology or like concepts that are outside of music that are underlying basically everything I've ever done too. Comparing it to Lucier, it's interesting, and you've performed Lucier's music. Lucier's music is very much always about a process. It's experimental music in the real sort of textbook definition. You're gonna do this sonic experiment this is what happens. Let's, you know, play with brain waves. Let's play with the resonant frequencies of a room and, you know, sounds coming out of a tea kettle. You know, there are all these extraordinary pieces that he did that were sort of a means to an end. But I sort of feel like with your music, it's about just enjoying those surfaces. There's a real sort of tactile quality to it, if I could throw that word out there. And I think part of it might be because for so many years, you were a performing musician, you were a percussionist. So your interrelationship with music is really about the sort of tactile, physical connection, whereas that music is is much more theoretical. I don't know if I totally agree that Lucier is more theoretical. It's definitely more reserved in that it's just very about, I wonder what would happen if I did this. 
it's very playful of just this sort of like innate fascination of figuring out how things work. But I definitely agree with you. And this is why I prefer string and percussion instruments and piano is because they're touch instruments. I just have a, a deeper understanding of that. I had to write a trumpet solo for Nate Woolley and I just had a total existential crisis about it because for weeks I just was like, I don't know what to do with this thing. <laughs> I ended up writing what I think is a, a really nice piece, but that was really hard for me, especially as a, a solo with a typically pretty somewhat limited instrument in terms of like what it can do sonically. But I got a really unusual piece out of it. A big driver of this music is just that I compose something and it's like, oh, this is great. I just want to keep hearing this. You know, it really is as simple. The pieces are more complicated than that, but I'm sure this will come up later. But the way that the last section of that new piece, Clock Dies, was written is that I wrote one or two bars as an experiment. And like my whole brain lit up where I just immediately was like, oh, it was almost not like a conscious decision. Like I wasn't trying to do that certain thing. And I never imagined that that piece would end the way that it does. But I heard it and I just was playing it on a MIDI realization. Even on MIDI, I was like, I just found myself playing it over and over again. And that's how I've been writing music for years and years is that if I find myself wanting to hear something or do something over and over again, and I can't totally explain why, then that to me is like a very, very good reason to put that into music because then you can kind of externalize those thoughts or see it from a listener point of view and, and you can kind of figure out more about what it is other than this sort of mysterious notion of like, oh, this is great and I want to keep hearing it without really understanding why. So maybe the word that we're both looking for that we haven't thrown out there that distinguishes this music from sort of more structural process stuff is intuition. Is that Oh, fair? definitely. Actually, when I was an undergrad, I did a, a week one-on-one -on -one residency with Stuart Saunders-Smith, and I really loved his music as a percussionist. And at the time, you know, I was in Herbert Brune's composition seminar, and I had this, like, intense, angry modernist and around these people who were setting up, like, rigorous systems for composition. And then I got to Stuart's house, and he was like, these weren't his exact words, but he more or less was like, yeah, I just start writing notes down. And I was just like absolutely shocked at the time where I was like, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh yeah, I'm a very intuitive composer. I just allow myself to just write intuitively. And I've never forgotten that word. And that has since evolved with me. And actually Spectral Mousconsities was one of the first pieces that was written that way. And it really was like very practical because I was touring and traveling just nonstop. And I find it hard to write music when I'm traveling. And so I was home and I remember they were like laughing that I got the piece to them like months before they needed it because I was just like, right, 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 right. Oh, okay, here you go. I got to go. <laughs> and so because of the circumstances, I didn't think really hard about what I was doing. I just was like, you know, I believed that the piece was what I wanted, but I didn't analyze what I was doing very much. And that was something that has become really interesting to me in the last couple of years up to like what I'm doing right now is doing things in a, in a somewhat, we could say intuitive or irrational or subconscious way and putting that into music to try to figure out of the literally infinite number of things I could do, why did my brain choose to do that in this moment? And those kinds of questions are really, really fascinating for me. 
Of course, the other interesting thing about that trio is written for Beethoven. Um, <laughs> I always want to say Beethoven, right? Which is kind of the play on, on their name. Essentially, their instrumentation is that of a jazz piano trio, you know, piano-based drums, piano-based percussion. We associate it with that music, with improvisatory music, but they do mostly score-based notated compositions that other people write for them. Yeah. But when you look, you know, you might be expecting to hear something very different than what you wind yeah. up hearing when you see that lineup. And I think what you do so wonderfully in that piece is you kind of play on just the sounds of those instruments. You know, what's funny about that, too, is that when I wrote it, the, specifically the first section where they're all playing the same pitches, the jazz combo thing didn't even occur to me as I was writing, because I've seen them do other pieces and Matt Evans, the, the percussionist, you know, has a more sort of typical new music-y setup where there's like maybe a marimba and gongs or whatever. And the reason it was a drum set is just because in that first section, all of the players play the same three pitches and then they all have this sort of like extra sound that's outside of the overall pattern. And so the bass is this like sort of thing and then the piano has a similar gesture but it's a piece of metal resting on the strings the percussion part it's the bass drum because the three the snare drum and the two toms are tuned to specific pitches the same pitches that the bass and piano play and so i just thought of the bass drum as like an extra thing and i said oh well that like he it's really easy for him to do that with his foot and it seriously it wasn't until much later that the jazz combo thing came into my mind and then I was like I just thought it was funny <laughs> that one that I hadn't realized it and two what you're saying is that visually it does really look like a jazz combo because it's a drum set but the decision to make it a drum set was very practical to just make the thing happen that I wanted to happen. Let's hear some of Spectral Malconsities from that same 2020 Sarah Henney's New World CD performed by Beethoven which is Carl Larson, Pat Swoboda, and Matt Evans. So intuition gets the same results yeah. as if you like did it like deep think, deep dive. Yeah, it was that piece and a piece called Reservoir One were both written under similar circumstances where I just absolutely blazed through them because I just didn't have the time. And that ended up opening a whole world for me in a lot of different ways that I'm exploring really specifically now. So I want to unpack a comment that you made about why you like repetition so much is that you said at some point that you like just using a few things you don't want to write too many notes mm -hmm. and that you like the idea that you can get the result you're after with as little as possible some might say you know the sort of a Marie Kondo kind of aspect to that you know kind of clear everything away there's sort of an austerity to it but I don't find your music austere at all but it is somehow economical yeah, that is a word that I have 
used many, many times. <laughs> and this has almost become like a joke with me because I've been talking about it so much, but I've always really, really loved Zanakas' music since I was a teenager. And in the last few years, he has sort of started to invade my consciousness more and more. But I've never forgotten, I took a class as a senior in college called Formalized Music, and it was mostly theoretical, but all about Zanakis's music. And I've never, ever forgotten the professor in that class more than once was like, no, he's a very practical composer. You know, you see like the score of Pithopracton, it's like the most complicated thing in the world, but it actually is, it's the most practical version of a score that could make the thing happen that he needed to happen. He has said that, not about that piece specifically, but he has said, I'm trying to make the thing happen that I want to hear with the minimum possible number of elements. And so I feel the same way, although obviously my music doesn't sound anything like his, but that I just think being economical and practical is interesting because you can get at the heart of a sound. I'm not writing melodies and harmonies. It's like not that kind of music. So it's about something else, either the sound itself or some kind of listener experience or something that isn't about me using a bunch of notes. I've been making my own music since I was a teenager, but I studied percussion as a student and didn't really get very, very involved in composing until around 2009. I've been playing improvised music for a million years and I've always been a creator, but it wasn't like composing specifically until this certain set of pieces in 2009. And I talk about this in composition lessons too, that having been a performer for so long and like my experience in two years of grad school of being put in this position of having to play 8 million student compositions in a semester, you learn really, really fast how irritated you are at someone who can't write like a clear and concise score. What is the easiest way to get a performer to do what I want without a bunch of extra nonsense is something that has played into like how I write music really, really profoundly, I think. So in terms of other heroes, other role models mentioned, we talked about Lucier, you mentioned Xenakis just now. Other things that I hear, I don't know if they're there. They might be, they might not be. Morton Feldman, James Tenney, and another one that might seem totally off kilter here, Galina Ustvolskaya. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of the sheer weight that comes with just only a few instruments. James Tenney, I have been aware of for ages, but that it's just one of those blind spots that I have that I really have never gone deep in his music. I recognize that there probably are some similarities. I'm like this with Robert Ashley too. I can see it's such like a huge world that if I get started on it, then it's going to turn into this whole thing that I'm not like prepared to spend the energy to go that deep on something that's such a huge world. <laughs> and Ustvolskaya, I haven't heard in years. I don't, probably not since college. So you're making me want to go listen to some of that music. But Feldman is like more tricky for me because something that he did that was very, very influential for me was in Crippled Symmetry and probably other pieces that every performer's in a different tempo. And he says, just go, no other instructions. Doing that super, super simple compositional tool generates all of this complexity that he never could have written himself. That is really, really important to me too, is, is writing in a way that can allow things to happen on their own or that something that can generate a level of complexity that you never could have written. Just on Wednesday this week, I'm doing a class called Sound Art at Bard College right now. And 
we did the Oliveros Teach Yourself to Fly sonic meditation. And it was just absolutely stunning. That score is like three sentences long. It was such a complicated, beautiful thing. And that couldn't have been made without that kind of ultra simple score with so much freedom. I'm sure one could write something similar, but there's something about the level of freedom that people have and how relaxed it is and how you start to hear connections that are happening accidentally that sort of give the impression of form or composition. Without that kind of freedom, I think it would lose something. It was like that music can't happen in another way. Everything that I find valuable about that music needs that score specifically, which seems like nothing if you just look at it. The score is a means to an end. I mean, I think one of the problems is that people have sort of fetishized scores. It's like fetishizing a recipe rather than the meal. I am not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to do a deep dive on Tenny, the thing that I thought about was in a very different aspect, Tenny's approach to microtonality. He mm -hmm. most of the time did not use systems. He didn't use, you know, say like a rigid, you know, quarter tone system or just intonation system. It was more about ranges of sound. If a pitch was between certain pitches, it didn't matter if you hit that precise note. It didn't have to be in a system. It was about how somebody perceives it. So he was interested in, say, just noticeable differences, that range of perception. And I sort of feel like the way you deal with repetition is very similar to the way mm -hmm. he dealt with microtonality. It was more focused on the listener than the compositional process. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah, I think that makes sense. Everything for me is about the listening experience. I mean, I don't even use quote unquote systems anymore. I, I but I've also become really interested in writing in a way that I keep using the word irrational or subconscious in my head that it's just kind of coming out of me for reasons I don't understand. But what you're saying about repetition totally is like, what is the most direct path to that experience that I want to create or that thing that I want to learn more about? And I will say as far as a microtonality, I'm solidly in the Zanakis camp on that too. And that Zanakis is not a tuning person, but you see quarter tones in his music all the time. My take on that, and again, he's very practical, is that he just needed an interval that's smaller than a half step. And so quarter tone. I'm the same that I frequently would like to use pitches that are closer together than a half step, but I don't need to go deeper than that because kind of what I was saying about Tenny, it's like, if you're going to call yourself like a microtonal composer, I just can't do that. It's too much to be good at it and to have a meaningful relationship with tuning. Like I'm not prepared to take in that level of knowledge when I can just go quarter tone and then I get a different kind of beating than I would with the half step. That's all I need for the thing that I want to do. Well, I definitely heard stuff outside of 12 tone equal temperament and clock dies. It's not notated that way, but there are quarter tones, but not a lot of them. But some of the things that I think I'm thinking of one moment in particular that sound microtonal are just a result of human performers. There's a part where the vibraphone is repeating this one note over and over and over again. And the conductor and ensemble were really confused as to why like, I wanted the dynamic of that vibraphone note to be, they kept telling me that it was inaudible. And I just think it was absolutely 100% audible. It's just that 
the flute and clarinet were playing, I don't remember the notes right now, but they're playing very close together harmonically. And to me, the inserting this vibraphone note dynamically just underneath what they're doing totally changed the character of the wind instruments without having to hear this like bing, 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 bing on the vibraphone. That like that's actually another another thing I've taken a lot from Feldman, particularly with keyboard percussion instruments, is how to minimize attack and maximize pitch and resonance. So this perceived microtonality, mm-hmm. it's not really there, but the ear hears it maybe because of the way the overtones of those different instruments react with each other? Yeah, I think so. And there's no guarantee that a player is going to play a mathematically perfect C-sharp every time, you know, and this is something else that I love doing is playing on inherent imperfections in human performance. I mean, that was what started everything is that a piece I made as an undergrad, a very, very simple vibraphone piece where the vibraphonist as mechanically as possible goes bing, 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 bing. But the sound, the resonance of the instrument's changing all the time because of the way the, the instrument is constructed. And that the absolute simplest possible thing a percussionist could ever do produces these results you don't expect, but that are also chaotic and unpredictable. That gesture is the foundation of my entire practice ever since then, that this simple thing equals complicated experience, not to make it sound too dumb, but but that's really it, is that, I mean, I'm sort of moving away from this idea now, but it still feels like totally connected. It clocked eyes, the perfect example, actually, that those kinds of listening phenomena are still present in the piece. They're just not the focus of the piece. When I made The Reinvention of Romance, I've told people lots of times that that's my favorite thing I've ever made because it felt like it tied together every single thing I care about as a musician into one piece. But it's not done in this conscious way. It's that the concept required all of these things that I've cared about for so long under this one sort of more non-musical concept. And being able to involve all of those things in pieces without being so like, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> but then it just happens on its own is something that I really like about that music. Well, the other thing about reinvention of romance that's so interesting, and I guess in sort of a Feldman sort of way is in some ways, the piece is so much about the combination of those instruments, the very unlikely combination of cello yeah. and percussion that exist in these two different worlds yet they coexist together. And in a way, that is what romance is, you know, two very different people, you know, coming together and being able to share this thing. And I suppose that is the subconscious, the psychological subtext, the emotional part of this music. Well, you know, there's a part in Reinvention of Romance around the 20 minute mark where the cello bows two notes and you just clear as day hear a third pitch. It's a normal result of a string that resonates with overtones. But that is like the total gesture of that piece is that you have two separate things that generates this magical third thing, which is the connection between the two physical things, you know, like a difference tone. There are physically two things, but there's this third element that is just there. You could say that that piece is like Feldman-y because it's quiet and it's repetitive, but Every compositional aspect of that came straight from the concept. I don't care if somebody thinks it sounds like Feldman, it's fine. Like, I think that there's enough different about that music that it doesn't sound derivative or something, but that 
everything came from the concept of the piece, which ultimately was like, there's some sort of space between two people that is palpable. And the longer it goes on, the more deep it gets. I've said this lots of times, but that in a domestic relationship, the longer it goes on, the more deep it becomes, which means that the only path for that occurring is time, which is why I made it 90 minutes because I needed it to be too long. Even if you're with someone for 20 years and you don't like each other anymore, there's still something there that is so complex that only developed that level of complexity because of this vast amount of time that passed. I just think that's such a beautiful gesture. And it's not about love. It's just about space and intimacy, but not like romantic intimacy, but that closeness. So then why reinvention? You know, a lot of my titles are, they're not communicating anything specific, but I knew that I wanted a more poetic title for that piece. And I knew I wanted it to be like really right. And I was just having a total meltdown about this. And I finally, I called a friend of mine and I was saying what I just told you. And they were like, well, you know, tell me about this piece. And I did. And, and they said, well, it sounds like you're trying to reinvent romance. And it was just like, bing! <laughs> that, oh, that's uh, beautiful. Not to do the Webster's Dictionary defines as, but when you look up the definition of romance, it's not just a synonym for love. There's an element of mystery. Another angle of the like simple thing equals complex is that there is mystery there of like, what is that space between those two people after 20 years? It's like, you don't know what it is. You know, it's there, but it's so complicated that you can't just say like, this is X. It's not something that can be intellectually communicated. It's just there. And that's really, really interesting and important to me. Let's listen to just a tiny bit of Sarah Henney's The Reinvention of Romance, performed by Two-Way Street, which is Ashley Booth on cello and Adam Lyon on percussion, released by Astral Spirits and available from Bandcamp. posit another thing about that piece that makes it so interesting and makes it clearly unfeldman-like is you're sort of coming at these instruments as a percussionist you're thinking of the cello in a way that a string player wouldn't necessarily conceive of it there's a more extreme example in the piece that you wrote for the chilean guitarist christiana alviar Orienting response. It doesn't sound like any solo guitar piece I can think of. When I wrote Reinvention of Romance, in my mind, I was like, this is the full version of Orienting Response. The way that Orienting Response got written is that was the first commission I got. And I had been doing all of this percussion music of like super loud, crazy acoustics that all came about through, you know, bing, 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 bing. And I get this request for a classical guitar piece. And I, my first thought was like, well, I cannot do this 
with a classical guitar. I just can't, it won't work. And so the thought was like, what if instead of repeating notes, it was repeating patterns? I can play guitar a little bit. And I started messing around with the guitar. And when I made that, I was immediately like, there have been a few moments over the last 10 to 12 years where I did something and I immediately thought, oh, I'm somewhere else now. Clock dies is the same that, that I feel like in the last year or two, I'm like totally somewhere new that's still connected to the old stuff, but I couldn't even explain it. I kind of still can't about, you know, it doesn't make sense that orienting response would be engaging. You know, it's like 45 minutes of bing, bong, bing, bong, but I just found it addictive or intoxicating. Like I just wanted to keep hearing it. And so I did that without even really knowing why. And so, yeah, reinvention of romance was me wanting to take that concept to a larger piece. Here's a section from Sarah Henney's Orienting Response, performed by Chilean guitarist Christian Alvear, released by MAPA and available from Bandcamp. mentioned playing guitar i want to you know go all the way back and talk about weird weeds which (laughs) i did a total deep dive on all of this stuff and there are things in that music particularly the untitled tracks i don't know if they're untitled the ones that are just titled with the dash on he me name melody Uh which really sound like the beginnings of what you would go on to do in your compositions so i'm wondering you know, were those works group created? Did different members compose certain ones? You know, what was the process for making the music with that group? It was pretty normal for any rock band, although I don't know if we would qualify as a rock band or not. But it generally, one of the guitarists would come with some sort of already written music for their instrument, and then it would develop as a group. I don't think it was all that different from any other rock band I was in when I was younger, just that the material had such a weird sensibility to it. But I'm glad you asked that because I don't really think about that band so much anymore. But I did that for 10 years and it was really, really important to me. And it's just that I'm not playing in bands anymore for a lot of reasons. And I just miss playing with other people also. But it's kind of like reinvention of romance. Like we played together so much that there was something there that was almost outside of the music. I felt so close with those people because we spent so much time together making this weird thing. (laughs) But yeah, it was around the time of Help Me Name Melody is when we started to use repetition. And the band started as like zero repetition. We were making these weird little 90 second songs where I was like refusing to ever play any kind of semblance of a regular drum beat. The songs were structured and behaved in really strange ways. Like it was just total anti-rock music, but not in an, in like an aggressive or ham-fisted way. It's just that the music is just really odd, but odd in this really pleasant way. <laughs> Actually, now that it's come out of my mouth is something that I still feel really is something I'm doing is that to be strange in a way that's not aggressive or dissonant for the sake of dissonance or something. Yeah, what's interesting talking about the relationship between that work 
it's so weird, even at this late date, when we talk about post-genre, that work exists in a particular silo. And the work you're doing now exists in another silo. And it's sort of ridiculous because there is a relationship between all of this stuff. Yet the fans of that band are probably not going to be the type of folks that go hear a contemporary music concert at Domena Art Center. And the folks at Domena Art Center are not folks who are going to go to a show by uh, Weird Weeds. That's to some extent true, but we played a lot of experimental music shows. And yes, it was totally different from everything else, but there's certainly some overlap. Will the person at the Puccini Opera go see Weird Weeds? Probably not, but... <laughs> Everything I've ever done in my life was adventurous music. But yes, like we mostly existed in rock clubs and what I do now mostly exists in like galleries and DIY spaces and the occasional classical music institution. <laughs> but the thing that ties them together that is like deeply important to me is that it's all totally independent music. I very intensely identify as a DIY artist who just occasionally finds myself at the Dumana Center for Classical Music. It's amazing to have access to those resources, and I'm very happy to be there, but that isn't like, quote unquote, my world. I mean, I don't have a world as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> except my own. Let's listen to some music by the band Weird Weeds, in which Sarah Hennies played percussion, along with Sandy Ewan and Aaron Russell on guitars and Lindsay Verrill on bass. This is one of those unnamed dash tracks off of the 2010 LP Help Me Name Melody, which was released on Sedimental Records and is available on Bandcamp. this is a conversation that I've had with a lot of visual artists over the years. Somebody creates a certain body of work and then a gallery signs them. And then they do new work that's exhibited and it doesn't look like the previous work and the folks at the gallery are all upset. It's like, wait, you did this other work and now you're doing this. It's like, well, yeah, this is what I'm doing now. The pull to constantly get excited about new discoveries and going in new directions versus this desire to have an individual sound or an individual look if you're a painter or an individual voice if you're a poet or, or what have you. You could say, oh, that's the work of Sarah Hennies. I know that that's Sarah Hennies' work. But it's a struggle. You mentioned you know, wanting to go into a new direction. How far can you go and still be you? This is a semantic thing, but I don't consciously want to go in a new direction. I mean, I want to be developing as a composer all the time, but I've never in my life thought like, today I am going to go in a different direction. It's happened like totally organically in that, again, practically in the way that I, the story I told about the guitar thing was just a total experimental in the most literal meaning of the word was, well, I'll do this and see what happens. And it's the same thing when I, the way that Clock Dies came about is there's seven musicians and we need a conductor. And so I wrote a through composed piece and there's like lots of measures. And, oh, and I didn't want to use a stopwatch because there's so many people. 
And so I got this really different kind of piece out of that. And, you know, there were other things that I wanted to explore in that piece, but I started writing with absolutely no concept. It only became clear to me, you know, midway through the writing. But I would say that orienting response and clocked eyes are the two things that have happened to me in the last 10 years where I thought, oh, this is something, this is something else. I've used this metaphor a lot, but that when I made these percussion pieces called Psalms, that was in 2009, I felt like I jumped into a pool. And ever since then, I'm swimming around in that same pool. But the more pieces I make, the pool just keeps getting bigger. The Weird Weeds were like this too, actually. If you heard our first album and immediately followed by our last album, you could say that's a completely different band. But the way that it developed was very gradual. Like it always just made sense that one thing led to the next thing. And, and that's totally how I work now as well. We didn't sit down and say, we're going to make an instrumental repetitive record. It was way more organic than that. Now, the thing about Clock Dies that to me is so extraordinary is the orchestrational detail, the minutia. It's something I mentioned to you in our email exchange. I love that, that section where the strings are playing with the wood of their of the bow rather than the hair, the, the sort of the Colenio technique, which yeah. is, you know, it's been around for centuries, but it's still magic. <laughs> it's so good, right? Yeah. Let's listen to a small portion of Sarah Henney's Clock Dies, performed by the Talia Ensemble, conducted by James Baker. I heard that and I'm like, wow, you say you don't want to deal with institutions, but wow, I'd love to hear you write an orchestra piece. I did write an orchestra piece. <laughs> okay, I, I got to hear this. I haven't I found that I yet. Don't, I don't not want to deal with institutions. I am very, very pleased to have work from almost anywhere, but I don't want to be like permanently attached to any organization or genre or movement or whatever like I just want to be out here wandering around by myself and just going where people want me basically I teach at Bard College and about a year ago or I guess it was a little over a year ago the chair of my department was conducting a concert for the Bard Grad Orchestra which is called the Orchestra now and he wrote to me and was like I'm conducting this concert and I'm wondering if you would like to write a piece for us and I never in a billion years what I thought I'd be writing for orchestra because I'm who I am. And it was all strings. And this was in December. And he was like, well, the concert's in February and also we can't pay you because <laughs> I work there. And my partner was just like, you should not do this. There was never even a, a iota of doubt in my mind that, that it was not worth it to do that because I was like, I'm never going to get to do this again. I love Zanakis' orchestral work because he wrote for one part per player. And I've always wanted to do that. The piece is called Falling Together. The beginning of the piece was specifically, it was 32 strings. It was, I want to hear 32 string players playing 32 different pitches bowed with the wood of the bow. Ooh. And this was like the height of COVID. And so the concert was only streamed. And I was just like, I have to come to this in person 
because I'm never going to hear it again. And this sounds cheesy, but I wept when I heard that sound. It's right at the beginning of the piece too. It is one of the most stunning things I have ever heard. It just was absolutely incredible. I just really wanted to hear that sound and, and it was as amazing, more amazing than I thought it would be actually. Wow. Wow. But yes, I would love to write for orchestra again or be given the opportunity to revise that piece a little more when I have more than six weeks to do it. And maybe a piece, not just with strings, but full brass yeah. section and tons of percussion and like all of yeah. it. <laughs> but it's funny, I always had more of an interest in small ensembles because of how intimate and immediate it is. But then when you hear 32 string players playing 32 pitches with the bow of the wood, suddenly you're not so interested in only small ensembles anymore <laughs> just because of what's possible. Well, another piece that we didn't talk about, when I mentioned to everybody at New Music USA that we were doing this talk today, our director of grant making program, Scott Winship, reminded me that there was a, a piece of yours that we funded, a piece called Embedded Environments. Yeah. And so I checked that out and I was hearing different things in there because it was several percussionists. So I was hearing layers of rhythmic counterpoint that I hadn't heard in any other piece. And I thought, wow, you know, once again, this is like a very kind of orchestral thing. What would happen if you had access to like this large ensemble? I played vibraphone on that, but it's only three percussionists, but it's played in this place in Buffalo called Silo City. I couldn't even tell you what the number of seconds of the reverb decay time is, but it's like shockingly long. That was another thing when I, when I heard it live, I almost cried because I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. But just to say that that piece was written with this like insane reverb in mind. And so the percussionists are playing this like, if you heard them without that acoustic, the parts sound like completely stupid. <laughs> like, because it's the same thing. It was like, the thing I want to hear is what the crazy stuff that happens in the room. So to me, the way to do that is percussion parts that have almost nothing to them. Like it's just boom, 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 played at different tempos. That's it. That's the percussion parts, at least for the opening section of that piece. Here's some of that percussion counterpoint in Sarah Henney's Embedded Environments performed by Silo City by Sarah Henney's with Jason Bowers and Tim Feeney. sound so different it sounds like so many polyrhythms going on it's nothing but just percussionists going ba -boom, ba -boom, and choosing whatever tempo they want it's awesome i love it i totally <laughs> I love it. that's the crippled symmetry thing is like yep. you generate this just amazing complexity through the simplest instruction in the world everything we've been talking about has been acoustic you know non-electronic works that are given to other musicians who play them in real time. But your work, Contralto, is a multimedia, electroacoustic video piece that exists as a fixed form piece. Yeah. But, you know, once again, I think if somebody is immersed in the sound world of your music, they would say, yeah, I hear 
the common sound world is playing with this notion of repetition, playing with this notion of starting and stopping, but once again, as a means to an end, there's a very deep emotional content to it. And what's amazing to me about it is it's so deeply personal, yet it's very abstract. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing five-word description of everything that I've been doing for a really long time, is using really, really personal experiences to do something with an enormous potential for the listener. My experience generates the music, but that's not the thing that I need people to know about. This, this other thing, we're using the word abstract. I mean, contralto is a little different in that way because it's very directly personal in a really obvious way. But all of the music in that came from the same deeply personal place as the film part of it. And almost all of the music in that came from older pieces. I've talked about this in other contexts too, but you know, I was very hesitant to make that piece for a while because I didn't want to be Sarah Henney's The Trans Composer. But I realized that, you know, I keep talking about this moment in 2009, that all of the work I had made from that point up to Contralto was completely related to the subject of that piece. And so even though it seems like a really different piece of mine, you're totally right. I mean, it very literally has old music of mine, like the section where everyone's kind of speaking in a normal way has this droney electronic vocal piece that literally I just took an old piece and dropped it right in the video because that's the only non-acoustic element in the piece because I remembered this old piece and I went oh that's why I made that piece and it was the perfect music for that section of that film and literally just took it from a folder on my computer and dropped it right into the premiere file there's lots of other elements that appear in other pieces too Here's a very brief portion of the audio for Sarah Henney's audiovisual documentary, Contralto. Visit sarahennies.com for more details on how to hear and watch the entire thing. Hey. Hey. Joe. So what are the projects that you would want to do? What is the next step? For a long time now, I've thought it would be great to write a piece that was three or four hours long. There is a French composer named Jean-Claude Elois and a percussionist named Michael Ranta, who I actually just interviewed yesterday. I'm very excited about it. But they made this piece together called Yoin that's three and a half hours long. For years, I was like, boy, wouldn't it be great to do something like that? Really, for a, a few years, I was just waiting for something to come to me where I was like, I need an idea that can sustain that amount of time. And that idea has emerged over the last year or so. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off because it would be really expensive because it involves a lot of performers and electronics and a big space. And right now it exists only as an idea 
couple other pieces I'm working on right now for like new commissions are kind of like orienting response and reinvention of romance. These current pieces are the baby versions of what I want to be this like massive project. And so I'm really, really focused on trying to find a way to do that. And of course, thinking of massive projects, I mean, maybe now we can think of them again. Yeah. I mean, for the last two years, a piece like Clock Dies, it's seven people, but in a pandemic era, it feels like a huge group. Yeah, I've only made two pieces in the last several years that I wasn't asked for. That's half true. I was asked for reinvention of romance, but the idea predated the ask. It just that I happened to get asked for the exact piece that I wanted to make, like shockingly accurate to this idea I had already had to write a long duo for two people. And then the two people I wrote it for are in a relationship together. Like it, it was shocking to me. But anyway, the only two pieces that I've written in the last several years that I just did out of totally out of my own interest was Reinvention of Romance and Contralto. And those are the two best things I've ever made, period. But it's not about best. It was like, I have to do this, that I just felt completely consumed with the need to make those pieces. And that's how I feel about this new thing that like, I'm actively pursuing doing this as opposed to the other, I've made a lot of work in the last few years and, and I'm really grateful for it, but they were commissions. It was like write a piece for two piano and two percussion. And so they were things that were specific things that were asked of me is where this is just like something that has formed completely outside of any employment opportunity that I've been given. I've been thinking about this for a long time now and it's just like, I just have to do it. I know that I do because I know it's going to be amazing. It's not about good or bad. It's that I need to see this experience or hear this experience. Like I just have to do it. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Well, maybe one day somebody will. <laughs> that concludes our episode of Sound Lives. But before signing off, let's hear just a little bit more of Sarah Henney's music. This is from Reservoir One Preservation performed by pianist Philip Bush and the percussion trio Meridian, released on the Australian label Black Truffle and available from Bandcamp. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.